All set, bud? Yeah. Okay. So have you ever had to, to make a really tough decision? Well, one of those decisions uh, that would alter the look and the direction of the whole rest of your life. I want to I tell you a story about someone that happened to you. Do you guys remember the story of Aaron Ralston? He, he was the guy who had that terrible rock climbing incident back in 2003. You know, the one that almost claimed his life. The, the one whose, uh, whose true story was the inspiration for that, that film, 127 Hours. Who's seen that? Okay. If, if, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Aaron, who at the time was a 27-year-old, uh, very experienced outdoorsman, had hiked all by himself out into a remote canyon area in Moab, Utah, uh, when without warning, a boulder uh, above him shifted and came hurtling down toward him, pinning his right arm and crushing his hand against the rock wall. And for the next five days, he, he tried various ways to free himself. So first he, he tried chipping away at the boulder with a little pocket knife he had, but of course that, I mean, that only just made a small dent uh, in the rock. Uh, then he tried to use his climbing rope to somehow rig up a pulley system to shift the boulder, but of course that unfortunately proved impossible. And then finally, in a moment of clarity, Aaron knew what he had to do, what he actually, what he did do, uh, which was to break his forearm, uh, use his rope as a tourniquet, and cut through the muscle of that forearm with the now dull and dirty pocket knife he had tried to chip the rock with until he was finally able to completely detach his arm uh, and in so doing was able to walk out of that canyon without his right arm uh, but with the rest of his life intact. Uh, and brothers and sisters, as brutal and shocking as that sounds uh, and that story is our Lord Jesus actually lays out a very similar picture today in our gospel reading when we encounter his solemn advice to do that very same thing that Aaron did to free himself from that rocky prison except uh, we are called to do our amputations not to preserve our physical lives, to, but to preserve our spiritual life. And so we're going to be circling back just a little bit. The lectionary this week takes us back to the end of Mark, even though we had kind of tripped over into chapter 10 last week. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. And this is the words of the true and living God. This is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father God, this is a really, a really tough passage to read, a tough passage to preach. Uh, so Father, we ask for the intervention of your Holy Spirit that you would open our hearts and minds that we'd receive today the message that you have for us. Uh, show us Jesus in these passages, Lord, and let us take this message with us uh, into our lives this week. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. 
So there, there's an awful lot to dig into there, right? But I think one of the first things that we see is the obvious fact that our Lord Jesus believed in and actively taught about the literal existence of an actual place called hell. And the very sad fact that there will be people who uh, are eternally consigned to be there. So, so you go from that teaching, then now fast forward two centuries from there to where we are now. Uh, and what you'll actually find, at least according to uh, Barna Associates and their polling survey data, is that currently only 32% of adults see hell as an actual place. I actually believe in it as a place of torment and suffering where the unsaved souls uh, go after death. And, and even among that 32% that, that do believe in it, very few of them actually even understand uh, what it's really about. I was telling Vicki, I actually read uh, earlier this week about a, a pastor who said that he had preached a message on hell one particular Sunday. And that after the service, uh, you know, when you walk out to shake hands with folks, there was a lady who was visiting that day. And she said, you know, Reverend, I never really knew what hell was like until I heard you preach today. <laughs> Now, you, you guys may say that to me on the way out. I don't know. <laughs> and, and he said, I thanked her at the time, but then I thought, I wonder what she really meant by that. <laughs> I thought that was funny anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the truth is uh, hell is no joke. It, it is a very real place, whether our modern age believes in it or not. Because, uh, you know, as I said, there's a whole lot of people who don't. Uh, some people think it's just an old wives' tale. Others think hell is just a state of mind, a psychological construct of repressed fear and guilt. Um, others think that hell is just a, a tenet of the medieval church to scare people into obedience and financial servitude. And today, um, you know, when you factor in all of that together, perhaps no other teaching has received more doubt than the doctrine of hell. You know, if somebody tells you they still believe in it today, uh, you're called old-fashioned or, or out of touch, out of step. With reality, even many modern liberal church leaders preach and write that the concept of an eternal hell where sinners uh, burn forever is ludicrous and demeaning. And some whole denominations believe that those who reject Christ are just one day going to cease to exist, like snuffed out like a candle, uh, with no eternal life or final consequences for the unsaved. And, and I guess for some that sounds pretty good. The only trouble is it's a lie. And so this morning, I'm not so concerned with what individual people believe about hell, and I'm not really that concerned with what the world believes about hell, and I'm not even all that concerned with what other pastors or denominations believe about hell, because, church, it is infinitely more important to know what Jesus had to say about it. Uh, and, church, the facts are that Jesus spoke more often about hell than he ever did about heaven. And that God's word has made it clear that every person is going to spend eternity in one of those two places, either heaven or hell. As Matthew 25 says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And so you see, ultimately, the, the Bible is very clear 
that the injustices of this world will finally be dealt with. And the suffering and pain of God's people uh, will end. And justice will be done. The righteous will be rewarded. Sinners will be punished. And if it weren't that way, think about it for a minute, then sinners win, right? Then, then people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong, they get the last laugh, right? They live however they wanted to. Uh, they pursue their own evil desires. They thumb their nose at God. And then what? They get to go on to an eternity of peace? I don't think so. The only trouble is in the world that we live in, if you talk about hell and sin or repentance and judgment and punishment uh, or, or any of those other topics that Jesus frequently covered, you're called hateful and, and judgmental. Uh, sometimes people will even say to me, Pastor, uh, you're not very loving. <laughs> right? How can you tell people that they're going to hell? Only a terrible person would say that people are going to spend an eternity suffering. And it's not just unbelievers who say stuff like that. Uh, I've been pressed on this issue by well-meaning folks who claim to be Christians. And yet don't ever want to call out or condemn people living in obvious sin. And it's funny because if you listen to the stories, they all have these personal anecdotes, right? These little personal stories about some, some relative or some friend some co-worker that they know who's they're a really nice person and and they mind their own business and they're the kind of person that takes back the grocery cart at the grocery store you know they're otherwise productive member of society so how could god possibly condemn them and and don't mishear me I, I know folks who bring up those kind of objections believe that they're doing it from a place of love and compassion but the part they always miss and this is what we talked about in sunday school is that when they say things like that, what they're actually saying, even if they don't say it out loud when they do that, is that they are more righteous than God and more compassionate than Christ in making the decision of what happens to believers or non-believers. That's what they're really saying. And you see, everything is so twisted now that the world thinks if people are heading off the cliff, the best thing that you and I can do is just look the other way. Or worse, others act like you should just encourage those folks on their trip. But church, that's the opposite of love. Because love mandates warnings. In just the same way you wouldn't let one of your kids touch a red-hot burner on a stove. Or stick a pair of shiny metal scissors into the closest electrical outlet. Just because the kids thought that might be fun. Right? Or just because they believed it would make them happy. That's completely beside the point. You'd be an unfit parent if you allowed that to happen, wouldn't you? So the real question is, how could I not? How could you not? tell people about hell if we love them we have to because of the old saying goes i would rather hurt you with the truth than give you the momentary comfort of a lie prince of preachers ch spurgeon said it something along those lines so of course he said it much more eloquently than i did he said uh, if sinners are to be damned at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies if sinners are to be damned at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies and if they perish let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees and not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Right? Not one. Not one go unwarned or unprayed for. And so likewise, Jesus says today uh, to his, his men, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And, and don't, don't let the, the graphic language of Jesus' recommendation to, to remove eyes and, and legs and hands throw you off. I mean, obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole here not as a prescription for someone to literally go hack off a limb or, or leave a, a gaping hole where your eye should be. But rather, he's employing colorful language to make a vitally important point. I was thinking, you know, today we might rephrase Jesus' words as, uh, even if it costs you an arm and a leg, resist temptation. It's worth it. Even if it costs you an arm and a leg. But either way, the meaning is clear. And even if we're not meant to take Jesus' words absolutely literally, we must at least take them seriously. Because the truth is that following Jesus sometimes requires amputations. Requires the amputations of things that stand between us and a relationship with a holy God who, uh, Psalm 711 says, who God is a, a just judge who is angry with the wicked every day. And the Apostle Paul describes it like this. He says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Uh, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. That's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires, even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. And since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deceptions. Malicious behavior and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And you may say, well, well, Pastor, that's just for folks outside the church, right? I mean, so why, why are you telling us that? Well, I want you to think for a minute. Who was Jesus addressing in, in the message in today's reading? Right? If you're following along in, in your own Bible, if you have it open in front of you, you just have to look back a couple of lines to see that Jesus is still in the same conversation that we read about uh, when we were in Mark chapter 9 last week, right? Where we read leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. And after they arrived at Capernaum, they settled in a house. When Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? And so he's in a house with just his guys, right? He's talking to his own men, his core group, the folks he had called out from the world. And he's reminding them that just being a part of a physical group does not automatically make you a believer. Like, who, who's heard Billy Sunday speak? Anybody remember Billy Sunday? 
Yeah. Billy Sunday used to say, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you an automobile. You could walk down the aisle, you could get baptized, you could come to church every day of your life, but that does not dictate if you are a Christian or not. Guys, it's the difference between what theologians call the visible church and the invisible church. Right? The visible church is the folks that we can see. Right? In every Christian gathering, it's, it's all the individuals we see around us here and in all the various uh, church buildings around the world on the Lord's Day. But the invisible church... The invisible church is the true church. It's the one that only God sees when he looks over all of us that is comprised uh, out of just actual born again believers. Uh, and humanly speaking, you and I can't tell who's in which group, can we? Right? We don't know. I can't see into your heart. You can't see into mine. But Jesus is saying that there are clues. There are clues as to the lives of those who live with and around us. Uh, and uh, better than that, there's definite markers to gauge where we are personally, spiritually. Because our Lord is making it clear to his men that those who pursue lifestyles characterized by immorality and at the same time are not willing to radically cut those things out are giving evidence that they are not actually saved. Regardless of what local church they attend or, or how much faith they profess. And don't forget this, uh, Judas heard every one of Jesus' sermons. Because as Christ said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that's all the bad news, right? That's the bad news. But here's the good news, literally. The good news of the gospel, if we don't miss it, that Jesus includes right at the end here when he said, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, just a casual reading through that. This, this took a lot of study to, to get to this. But just on the surface, that may not make a whole lot of sense to us. But it definitely did to the disciples. Because in the closing lines of Mark chapter 9, Jesus is paraphrasing the final chapters of the prophet Isaiah. And you're going to see that if you're doing the daily readings. Uh, Isaiah's chapter of judgment and hope where God reveals his plan for the future. Plans where his enemies would receive the fiery wages of their sins and where his people would enter into the eternal state where the Father has promised he will finally and completely purify his elect. And to do it, he'll do it all through an offering of the perfect sacrifice. And this is where Jesus' message today really starts to pull together. Uh, because in ancient times, you know, before the cross, when people brought their sacrifices to the altar for forgiveness... No sacrifice could be offered without salt. I, I, didn't, I never really picked that up before, but I'll give you just a couple quick examples. Leviticus 2.13 says, Season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. Numbers 18.19 says, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It's an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. And I think this is the one that really, that really cinches it. Second Chronicles 13 says, Do you not know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by what? Covenant of salt. Covenant of salt. Right? Now that may sound really strange because for us salt is, is pretty cheap. 
right? It's really easy to get a hold of. But not in ancient times. In ancient times, salt was rare. And it was valuable. That's so much so that soldiers were often paid in salt, right? Now, that's where that, that saying comes from, that phrase, worth your salt, right? Uh, but it's also been common throughout history for people to confirm their agreements and their covenants with each other by eating and drinking together. And just as salt is added to food not only to preserve it from decay and to enhance its flavor, uh, it also ended up making it into a symbol of purity and of permanence. So a covenant of salt signified an everlasting covenant. And church, that's the same covenant that Jesus was so earnest for his men to understand as, as each passing day he's drawing closer and closer to the cross. For them to really see that on the one hand, God's covenant promise is to judge with fire those who persist in sin. But on the other, the infinite perfect value of the atoning sacrifice of the blood of the spotless lamb. The blood, of, the blood of the lamb whose work of grace in the elect begins when we are born again by the quickening power and operation of the Holy Spirit that justifies us completely before the court of heaven and at the same time sets us out on the road to sanctification. Where from that moment on we are commanded, the Bible says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not to, not to work it up not to work for our own salvation, but to work it out. Like, remember when you used to have to do that with math problems in school, right? When the teacher would say, don't just mark down the answer, but I want you to show your work, right? Because the Bible says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And to do it as we diligently seek to live a holy life because of God's grace toward us and not just rest satisfied in our present spiritual progress. Because it's the realization that God has turned his wrath away from us that should motivate us to live a life that's pleasing to him in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. So for this very reason, the Bible says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it happens with us ruthlessly cutting out anything that would keep us from a closer walk with him. Just like in that story of Aaron Ralston in that abandoned desert canyon. And also, hey, just like his arm, the flesh doesn't die easily, does it? Right? Battles still rage within us, even with the most disciplined follower of Christ. Uh, and church, even though we'll never reach perfection until, until glory, we are still commanded to have salt in ourselves. We're still commanded to have the salt of that eternal covenant of God's perfect sacrifice in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so I call on you today in his name. To repent and receive the gospel and to be at peace. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this tough message that turns so tender at the end with your uh, beautiful sacrifice of, of your son who died on our behalf. Even though, Lord, we didn't deserve it. Uh, even though, Lord, we've, we know that we've committed uh, sins and, and done things that would separate us from a relationship with you. But we thank you for Jesus for his love, for his death on the cross, and for his rising 
uh, that we could have our permanent relationship restored with you in heaven. And so, Father, be with us as we go out this week and take that message with us, in us and through us, in his name. Amen. Amen. And would you please